mind as we ask for God's blessing. Let us call upon our Heavenly Father, Father of all goodness and mercy, beseeching Him to cast the eye of His clemency upon us. Neither impute to us the many faults and offenses which we have committed, provoking His wrath against us. But as we look into the face of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom He has appointed mediator between Himself and us, let us beseech Him, in whom is all fullness of wisdom and light, to vouchsafe to guide us by His Holy Spirit into the true understanding of His holy doctrine, making it productive in us of all the fruits of righteousness, to the glory and exaltation of His name, and to the instruction and edification of His church. And let us pray unto Him in the name and favor of His well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, as He taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Just one verse. The title of the sermon is By Obedience Alone. By Obedience Alone. Romans 5, verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a Christian school cafeteria, there was a pile of apples on a platter with a note that a teacher had put next to it for the students. Take only one. God is watching. At the other end of the table, there was a pile of cookies on a platter, and one of the snarky students had put a little note there besides the cookies that said, take all you want, God is watching the apples. <laughs> Obedience is hard, isn't it? Being obedient is hard. We know that God wants obedience from us, right? He desires it. He calls us to it. But we seem continually bent on trying to get around it in some way, of trying to avoid His commandments. Isn't that the story we've seen in Genesis with Adam and Eve, right? They're called to obedience. They're given a command. A very specific one about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God called them to obedience. But just one chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that they could not render that obedience. They disobeyed like the student in that little cafeteria. They thought that God wasn't watching and they took and they ate all that they wanted. Those early chapters of Genesis teach us that obedience is hard. And it's hard for us. 
Don't you recognize that in your own life? Don't you find it hard to obey? I mean, we think about it with our kids. Why don't they obey? Why are they doing these things? Why won't they listen? Why won't they do it? But if we really think about ourselves, even as adults, even though we're better at hiding it, rationalizing it, you know, trying to cover it up in a variety of ways, we too know that we are disobedient at heart. We're not good at it. I think about that in my own life. I've been walking with Christ a long time, and yet I still struggle to be obedient because obedience is hard. But what if I told you this morning that your life depended on your obedience, on obedience itself? That obedience is essential for your salvation. What if I told you that? That should make you nervous given your propensity to disobey. Now, maybe at this point in the sermon, you're thinking to yourself, hey, PA, it's Reformation Day. We know the solos of the Reformation. We know that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, right? What kind of heresy are you spouting this morning? I mean, to suggest that we are saved by obedience alone. Now that's going to be out there on YouTube on this sermon title, right? On YouTube, by obedience alone on Reformation Day. And I'm guessing somebody might call the area code 616 on me. (laughs) And if you don't know what area code that is, that's Grand Rapids. (laughs) Okay, Grand Rapids, Michigan, the holy mothership there in Grand Rapids. You know what? You might be a little bit worried about Pastor Anthony here. Is he going off the deep end? On a day we celebrate faith and grace and scripture and the glory of God alone, I'm talking about obedience alone. I'm saying to you, you are saved by obedience alone. What's going on? Well, give me a little chance to make the case before you dial that 616 area code. And let me start with some stories here. Stories about how Christians think of salvation. How we think about salvation. Let me, you know, as as I go through this, is this how you think of salvation? Let me tell you a little story and try to explain why we're saved by obedience alone. Now, this story comes from Brian Chappell, and Brian Chappell's a really good theologian, very sound person. It comes from a book he wrote, Holiness by Grace, and here's the story as he tells it in that book. An old tale speaks of a man who died and faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. The angel said, here's how this works. You need a hundred points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you have done, and I will give you a certain number of points for each of them. The more good there is in the work that you cite, the more points you will get for it. When you get to a hundred points, you get in. Okay, the man said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never cheated on her even in my heart. And Gabriel replied, that's wonderful, that's worth three points. Three points, the man said incredulously. Well, I attended my church all my life. I supported its ministry with my money and service. Terrific, said Gabriel, that's worth a point. One point, said the man with his eyes, you know, beginning to start to panic a little bit, you know, he's not making much progress here. Well, how about this? I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city and fed needy people by the hundreds during holidays. 
Fantastic. That's good for two more points, said Gabriel. Two points, cried the man in desperation. At this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. (laughs) Come on in, said Gabriel. So you get that story, right? That's a, that's a good story, right? It gets at the heart of the nature of grace. We understand what it's saying. And I find really no theological fault with that story. It's good as far as it goes. We don't earn our salvation by scoring points with God, by our obedience. I grant that. But having said that, I still think that story is incomplete. It's not telling the entire story of salvation. It's not the full story. I don't think it's wrong. I just don't think it's fully right. I think we do need 100 points to get into heaven. I think we do need a perfect score. No curves. Close doesn't count. In other words, I would say to you, that we get into heaven by obedience alone. Okay, don't call that 616. (laughs) Hang on with me a little bit longer. Let me try to make this case a little bit more. Let me kind of flesh this out and give you another story that kind of brings us a little closer to the point I'm trying to make and get at. And this really relates to a story that reminds us that salvation is more It's more than a cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card. Let me tell you this story. This story comes from Doug Eaton, who's involved with uh, Trinity International University, a professor there, an administrator there as well, Doug Eaton. He tells this story. He says this, Imagine a dad walks into his son's room one morning and lays down the law. He tells tells him his room is a mess and must be cleaned by 4 o'clock p.m. By the way, let me pause to give the disclaimer. This is a fictional story. Any, <laughs> any similarity to actual persons living or dead or actual events is purely coincidental. In other words, this is not about my son. He does have a messy room, however, but that's not, that's not the problem here. right? So the, imagine a dad walks into his son's room one morning and lays down the law. He tells him his room is a mess and must be cleaned by 4 p.m. If the son completes the job on time, the dad will buy him movie tickets to go out with his friends. If he does not finish it on time, he will be grounded for a week. In essence, dad has explained the law and its accompanying blessing and cursing. However, at 4 p.m., he returns to see the room still a mess. So the son is grounded. So you get the story, right? Pretty simple. You've got a father and a son here. They have this agreement. The son is supposed to clean his room by 4 o'clock. If he does that, he gets the movie tickets. If he doesn't do it, he gets grounded. What did he do? He failed to do it, and he got grounded. By the way, that reminds me of a dad joke. Do you know what happened to the disobedient kid who played with electricity? He got grounded. You're supposed to groan at those jokes, not laugh at them. But you got the story, right? So this is what's going on. The kid didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't clean his room by 4 o'clock. He got grounded. He didn't get the tickets. Now imagine this, and Eaton brings this out in the story. Imagine that a week later, Eaton writes, 
Imagine a week later, after he has satisfied his punishment, he walks up to his father and says, my punishment has been paid, now give me the movie tickets. What would you say? (laughs) If you were a parent, right, what would your reaction be? What is wrong with that picture, with that story? Eaton says every parent would chuckle at that because... Though he can no longer be punished, right? He finished his punishment. He never fulfilled what was required to receive the reward. And there it is. You see, there's punishment there, right? It has been taken care of, but the reward was never earned. Why? Because the reward was based on his obedience. He did not get to the hundred points. He didn't satisfy the conditions. And so while his punishment was over... He was not deserving of the reward because the reward required obedience. And I would say to you that eternal life, the only way to get eternal life is through obedience. Now again, hold on. Let me tell you another story that explains exactly what I'm talking and shows you about why I am not heretical. I want to tell you why salvation is by obedience alone. And that brings us to a third story. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the story in the Bible. It's the story that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And it's really a story about two characters and a covenant. Two characters and a covenant. Now, most of you are familiar with characters, right? We watch plays and movies and things like that. We get that. But maybe the idea of covenant is new to you, what it means, what it is. Maybe you've come upon that word in the Scripture, or you hear it, right? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, there's this covenant language, and I would argue that covenant really is the kind of structure of Scripture, how we understand how God relates to His people to us. So two characters and a covenant. Now what exactly is a covenant? Well, let me try to define that for you. Here's a few definitions from theologians of a covenant to kind of get this in your head. Meredith Klein uh, described it this way. In general, a covenant may be defined as a relationship under sanctions. Good old Dutch theologian named uh, Puritan, uh, named Herman Witsius, He described a covenant this way, a covenant of God with man is an agreement between God and man about the way of obtaining consummate happiness. And one last one here from a modern theologian, Rick Phillips, he describes a covenant this way, a covenant is the means by which two parties are bound in relationship. Covenants provide the terms of agreement that structure a relationship, setting forth the means of entry the obligations and the privileges that the relationship will entail, along with the penalties for breaking the stipulated conditions. Okay, that's good. These are all helpful. And really, what they give us, all these definitions, and what the Bible gives us, and what our understanding of covenant gives us, is it really a covenant in the Bible, a biblical covenant, is made up of four elements. There's four things you need. And they were all present in that story. We heard about the boy in his room, right? The first thing we need is parties. There has to be two parties involved. And in that story about the boy, it was his father and the son, right? They're the parties. There's an agreement between parties, a relational agreement. The second thing is to have promises. 
there has to be a promised reward in the story. It was the movie tickets. The father and son have an agreement about the movie tickets. That's the reward. That's the promise. Parties, promise. The third thing you need for a biblical covenant is conditions or stipulations. That is, there has to be a basis for earning the reward. Clean up your room by 4 o'clock. The condition. Parties, promise, condition, and then finally sanctions. There's what happens if you don't do it? What happens if there's non-performance? You're grounded. That's really what a biblical covenant is. It's those four elements. And I would argue with, I would contend, I would promote this idea, I believe it is there, that God entered into a covenant in Genesis 2 and 3, entered into a covenant with Adam. Now, you might say to me, when I read that, Pastor, I don't see the word covenant in that text. Well, we don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, right? But we believe in it. Why do we believe in it? Because of the theology of all God's revelation. And as we look at all of Scripture, what it says, including what we read this morning from Romans 5, we can look back into that relationship between God and Adam, and there is a covenant there. There are parties there. God and Adam... Right? There's a relational parties there together, that element. And we know from the fullness of Scripture that Adam not only represented himself, but interestingly enough, all of humanity. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Adam and what he did and didn't do had consequences for all of us. Were you aware, aware that Adam represents you? That you are connected to him? So we have parties. We have Adam and God. We have God and Adam and Adam's posterity. Secondly, we have a promise. What's the reward in creation? It's the tree of life, right? There was a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was this tree of life. There was some higher life to which Adam could attain, right? Some greater way he could have lived, a life that was different, even though he didn't know death. Even though he was upright and in holiness, he had not yet attained the, the highest estate possible, and that was set before him. If you obey, Adam, you will have life. Life eternal that's reflected by that tree of life. And that was presented to him as a promise. And of course, the condition was that he would obey, that he would follow God's commands, that he would render perfect obedience, particularly with the command not to eat of the, tr knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's parties, there's a promise, there are the conditions, and then there's the sanctions. And what was the sanction? One word starts with D. Death, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you shall die. It's just like that story with the, with the father and the son, the room, right? This is it. This is the whole thing. All the parts are there, except the stakes are much larger. They're greater. And in Reformed theology, we call this covenant with Adam the covenant of works. Works because of obedience. Some call it the covenant of life. Some call it the covenant of creation. I think it should be called the covenant of works because it is based on obedience, on the deliverance of obedience. And spoiler alert, Adam didn't do it. He didn't do it. 
He failed to keep that covenant. He ate of the tree. He broke it. And Paul tells us what happened because of that. Sin entered the world, world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Do you, do you know that you were born into this world on death row? Just waiting like a sword of Damocles over your head. If you are in Adam, if you have Adam as your representative, you're cosmically grounded, right? Death row. Adam was banished from the garden. Do you remember that? How he's banished from the garden? And what does he lose access to? The tree of life. God is guarding the tree of life. There's no way to get back in through Adam, right? You're not getting that tree of life. You ain't getting the movie tickets. You see, we have an obedience problem. We really do. We have an obedience problem. And our representative is really a bad one. Now that's the bad news. But let me give you the good news this Reformation Day. Because the story goes on to the second character. And do you know that second character? You know who he is. He's Jesus, of course. But do you know he has a nickname in Scripture? That Paul gives him this nickname in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. God provided us with another Adam, a better Adam, a last Adam, a second Adam. And isn't that interesting that Paul would draw that connection? Why? He does the same thing in Romans chapter 5. It's because he understands that covenant of works is there. We're still under that sword of Damocles. We're still on death row, and we need a better Adam. Why do we need a better Adam? Because we need obedience. We need one who can do what we could not do ourselves, and that is to keep God's law perfectly. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was born under the law, why he lived why he didn't just parachute down, die on a cross, go back to heaven. He had to live a righteous and perfect life. We have a better Adam. And Scripture points this out. There are so many ways it does this. Shane Morris has this wonderful little list of the contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. This is what he says here in these little parallels he has. The first Adam yielded to temptation in a garden the last Adam beat temptation in a garden, in Gethsemane, of course. The first Adam ate and a covenant was broken. The last Adam ate and a covenant was established, the Last Supper. The first Adam was a man who sought to become like God. The last Adam was God who became a man. The first Adam was naked and received clothes. The last Adam had clothes but was stripped naked. The first Adam tasted death from a tree. The last Adam tasted death on a tree. The first Adam hid from the face of God. The last Adam begged God not to hide his face. The first Adam blamed his bride. The last Adam took the blame for his bride. The first Adam brought thorns and thistles. The last Adam wore thorns and thistles. The first Adam became, brought a curse. The last Adam became a curse. The first Adam listened when the serpent said, take and eat. The last Adam told his followers, take and eat. 
God provided exactly what we needed and exactly what we could not provide ourselves. And if you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, you not only get the benefit of his atoning death, his suffering, his taking the the wrath of God for you, the punishment for you, but you also receive his righteousness. You receive not only the benefits of his death, you receive the benefits of his life. You receive his obedience. His perfect obedience becomes your obedience. Romans 5, 19, as I read this morning, puts it as succinctly as possible, for just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's the first Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the last Adam, the many will be made righteous. It's his obedience that makes us righteous, that earns for us the reward that earns for us access to the tree of life, to eternal life. Revelations 22, 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. The way you get to that tree of life is through the path of Christ's obedience. He earned it for us. To put it in those stories, he got a hundred points, a perfect score, and it's yours in him. To put it in the context of those stories, he cleaned the room for you. Right? Praise be to God, because your room is messy, people. The room of our lives, right? Right? Because obedience is really hard. It's hard to be obedient. And God is watching the apples and the cookies. He sees everything. And he's really a perfectionist. Particularly when it comes to his commands, his law, his expectations. And if you're trying to perform your way into the kingdom of God, you'll never get there. Because close does not count. Right? It's not horseshoes, it's not hand grenades, it's all about perfect, perfect bullseye. And there's only one person who's ever satisfied the exacting commands of God, and that's Jesus Christ. So this Refor- Reformation Day, remember, yes, remember how Jesus died for you. Remember that. But also remember how he lived for you, how he provided his perfect obedience for you. Remember that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but you are also saved by obedience alone. The active, perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. And it's yours. It's mine. Praise be to God. Because obedience is hard. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you this morning for the good news of the gospel, for the full-orbed gospel, for all of the gospel and its beauty. We celebrate this morning all of your work, Lord Jesus, all of it. Your death upon a cross and your perfect life lived for us. We rejoice in that good news and we claim it in faith. 
for your glory. In Jesus' name.